0: Well, good morning. Thank you uh, to our praise team for leading us in worship this morning. These songs were absolutely perfect for the message. And so uh, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. This will be opened up by next week. It uh, will not yet be usable, but in the next couple of weeks, this will be completely finished. And then uh, we'll add another 50 seats or so over there. And uh, so all of the finished work is going to happen this week and the beginning of next week. So uh, it's really coming along. It's been pretty seamless, and uh, we're grateful to be able to have some additional space uh, in the coming days. Well, we're going to start in First Timothy chapter 1, but we're going to work our way over to John chapter 7 as we finish up chapter 7 this morning. So Our text for today is John chapter 7, verses 37 through 52. Last Sunday uh, was a special day in the life of our church as we celebrated our 12-year anniversary, and we're looking forward to continuing that celebration this afternoon as we have a picnic and seven of our folks will be baptized out at the home of Grady and Corey Summers. And if you were with us last week, you know that our service was jam-packed with resounding songs of praise to the Lord. And one of the songs that we sang last week was called, Jesus Only Jesus. It's a powerful song about who Jesus is, and the praise and the adoration that he deserves from those whom he's created. The first stanza of that song goes like this, who has the power to raise the dead, who can save us from our sin? He is our hope, our righteousness, Jesus. Only Jesus. And as the song goes, when we think about the awfulness of our sin, it should point us to Jesus. He is the only one who can save us from the penalty of our sin. He is our only hope and righteousness. The recurring theme that we have seen over and over in our study of the Gospel of John has been that Jesus is the only way of salvation for sinners. Unless a person acknowledges their sin and is broken over their sin before a holy God and desires to turn from their sin and turn to Jesus Christ in faith, there is no salvation. As Jesus will say in John 8, 24, that those who do not believe will die in their sin. And all this means that for one to truly turn to Jesus Christ in faith, there must be repentance from sin. Repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of action. Look with me at verse 15 of 1 Timothy chapter 1. The apostle Paul says to his dear son in the faith, Timothy, in his first letter to him, he says, this is a faithful saying And worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. The Apostle Paul doesn't identify himself as the chief of apostles. He doesn't identify himself as the chief of missionaries. You know, God used this man, the Apostle Paul, this man who had persecuted believers prior to his conversion on the road to Damascus. This was the guy that was the chief enemy of the church, the chief enemy of Christians. And God, through his sovereign grace, reaches down, knocks him down, and saves him miraculously. And the apostle Paul becomes the greatest missionary in the history of the church. God uses the Apostle Paul, to write 13 of the New Testament epistles. This guy started more churches than probably everyone else combined during his era. God used this man in amazing capacity, and I I can't help but, but point to this, that rather than taking any ounce of credit for anything, he calls himself the chief of sinners. This word chief is the Greek word protos, which means first, leading, or ranking higher than all the others. Other translations use other descriptive words like foremost, or worst, or worst of them all. You see, Paul viewed himself as the highest ranking worst of all sinners. A sinner is someone who's violated the holy character and law of God. And Paul felt like he was the chief. The chief of sinners. You know, if we lose track of our sinfulness, we lose track of God's grace. As Jesus continues to reveal himself to the people of Israel, that issue is their sin. They are sinners. And it is the same with us. Every one of us has a sin problem. A problem that we cannot correct on our own A problem that we are absorbed in. We are sinners. We received a sin nature from Adam, our representative on the earth, our federal head, and we are now sinners. Sinners by nature and sinners by commission. And our sin has alienated us from God, and we're deserving of eternal punishment. The Bible calls it God's wrath. That's what we deserve. But God demonstrated His own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God the Father loved sinners so much that He sent His only begotten Son to the earth to take the punishment and to die in the place of all who would believe in Him. And this is at the heart of the Gospel of John. And so as we turn over to John chapter 7, and we look at our passage for this morning, Jesus is going to use another metaphor that is inextricably led, tied to his previous claim that he was the bread of life or the, or the living bread. Here, he will associate himself with living water. And again, just to grasp the significance of Jesus' claims, what are the two things that folks physically need for sustenance? What did God provide to the Israelites to sustain them physically as they wandered through the wilderness? It's bread and water, right? Physical bread and physical water. But Jesus came to provide spiritual bread and spiritual water. Without food and water, man can't exist and will die. That's why Jesus uses these metaphors so let me set the scene for you here as we consider what's going on. A couple of days have passed since Jesus taught in the temple. Remember, Jesus went down from the Galilean region to Israel, down to Jerusalem for the week-long Feast of Booze, or the Feast of Tabernacles. He arrives midweek, and His presence caused quite a stir among the crowds. The people were continually divided as to who Jesus really was. And we're going to see another example of that in just a moment. But as I said, a couple of days had passed since his teaching in the temple, and, and it is now at the very end of the feast week. It's the final day. It's the last day, and with that comes a special celebration. So with all of that as the backdrop, let's look at our passage for this morning, beginning in verse 37, and I'll read all the way down through the end of the chapter verse 37, now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified." Some of these people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, This certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, This is the Christ. Still others were saying, Surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So a division occurred in the crowds because of him, and some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees. And they said to them, Why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees then answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. Nicodemus, who came to him before being one of them, said to them, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? And they answered him, you are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee." Well, as we take a closer look at this this morning, we're going to find four major points to consider. So if you're taking notes, the first major point to consider is that Jesus makes a universal offer. Jesus makes a universal offer. Look at verse 37. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water but this he spoke of the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for the spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified and now there's a lot here just in those three verses there is a lot here it's the last day of the feast until everyone goes back to their normal schedule and their normal living situation you remember Uh, The people have been living in makeshift booths or tents as they celebrated what God had done for their forefathers in the Exodus. So first here, as we look at this, we find it interesting that Jesus stood and cried out this offer. So remember, rabbis or teachers would normally sit when they taught, but Jesus stands up for emphasis and he cries out he elevates his voice so that everyone could hear his universal offer to come to him. He says, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Now, he's talking here, and in, in, it says it in verse 38 here, but he, he's talking about believing in him as the Messiah. And to those who believe, rivers of living water will flow from their innermost being. We might ask, why would Jesus use the metaphor of living water? Well, there were daily ceremonies during the feast of booze that involved water, symbolizing the water that the Lord had provided to their parched forefathers when they were wandering in the wilderness. That's what the Feast of Booze was celebrating, God's provision to the Israelites. And so Jesus says, if you are thirsty, I will quench your thirst. Just come to me. If you're thirsty, I will quench your thirst. Just come to me. Have you ever been parched? I mean, if you played sports of any kind and you've really exerted yourself over a period of time, you're going to get thirsty. Because we're going to sweat out a lot of the liquid that is in us, and we're going to require a replenishment of water. Have you ever watched the uh, Tour de France? Not Tour de France, well, that too, but uh, the uh, New York City Marathon or any of these big marathons? And they're running all these miles, and they're just sweating profusely. And so they have these tables on the side where they can go over and they can get some water and they can drink it and they can pour it over their head. Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, and there's an assumption that they all are, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And so in keeping with Jesus' use of water here, when we think of this this universal offer of the gospel, there are generally three types of people in the world. First, there are those who have absolutely no desire to drink. I spoke with someone this past week who would fit into this category. As I was trying to talk to him about the Lord, he says, I have a different viewpoint than you on these things. And I said, well, it doesn't matter what my viewpoint is, and it doesn't matter what your viewpoint is. It matters what God the Creator's viewpoint is. And he wrote the Bible. The Bible is inspired by God. It's breathed out by God. This is God's Word, His revelation to man. It doesn't matter if we have a different take. It matters what His take is. And His take is that we must turn to Him if we are thirsty we must believe in jesus christ if we want to have eternal life this has been the recurring theme as we've gone through the gospel of john but this guy had no desire whatsoever to drink these are people that actively oppose the gospel they actively oppose Jesus and biblical Christianity. This group is growing exponentially. Doing some reading the other day, uh, some really almost non Christian reading, it was more on the history of our country. And I was reading uh, about some of our founding fathers. And the founding fathers of our country, our, our nation, uh, wrote the founding documents with God in mind. It's hard, to, it's hard to not see that. We have in God we trust on our currency. We're supposed to be one nation under God. And while not every founding father was a true Christian, and as I understand it, most were not, they weren't adamantly opposed to God. They recognized that there was a God. But there are many today who fit the description here of this first group of people. They want nothing to do With God. They want nothing to do with Jesus Christ, who is God. And so the first group of people are those who adamantly oppose any sort of drink. Okay? Second, there are those who are willing to take a sip. They're willing to take a sip of the water, but they put the cup down and they move on. We think of the rich young ruler when we think of this group of people. When he learned of the cost to follow after Jesus, when he took a sip, He put the cup down, and he walked away. I want to take you to perhaps one of the most difficult passages in the Bible that deals with this. So if you would, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. I want to bring some light to a controversial passage. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. And most of you, if you've been a Christian for any length of time at all, uh, are aware of this passage in Hebrews... And maybe you've wrestled with it a little bit to try to figure out just exactly what the writer of Hebrews is trying to communicate here, but I'm going to try to make this understandable for us today. So Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. Again, we're talking about those who are willing to take a sip of the water, but they put the cup down and they move on. Here's what Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 says. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened Who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. What in the world does this mean? Well, as we look at it, we know it can't mean that a person can somehow lose his or her salvation right? I mean, the Scriptures are replete as to what God does in salvation and uh, keeping us saved. So it can't mean that a person can lose his or her salvation. And so what is he saying here? What is the author of Hebrews saying here? Well, this passage is about those who took a sip. Those who had a taste. Unbelievers who are convinced of the basic truths of the gospel, but who have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. They have an intellectual understanding. They know things. They've read Scripture. They've been around. They've listened to preaching. They've listened to teaching. But they have no spiritual commitment to the Lord. There's no repentance. You see, it's one thing to have intellectual knowledge or to have taken a sip of the water or to even have dabbled in the Holy Spirit-empowered church. But it's quite another to be personally regenerated by the Spirit of God. So this here in Hebrews 6, 4-6 is referring to unbelievers who have been exposed to God's Word and His redemptive truth and perhaps have even made a profession of faith, but it wasn't genuine saving faith. This falling away occurs at some point after the sip because it doesn't lead to the drinking that quenches an unbeliever's thirst. They're still thirsty because they only took a sip. It's, it's a volitional turning away that doesn't ever lead to repentance. These people come right up to the line and for whatever reason, turn away. This is so heartbreaking for me to witness in the lives of people some who have sat in these very chairs in this very room who appear to have fallen into this category they took a sip they were even a part of the church for some time and now they have nothing to do with christ absolutely nothing to do with the lord jesus christ even to the point now where they once would have made a profession of faith, they once would have probably argued with people about the truth of the gospel and the truth of God's word, now are wavering on everything in their life. There was no true repentance. They had only taken a sip. But there's a third type of person, and these are those who drink and keep on drinking. Those who drink and keep on drinking. Because they've been convicted of their sin and regenerated by the Holy Spirit, there's genuine belief that leads to a changed life. Stark, stark difference. As we go back to John chapter 7, let me say this about verse 39. John chapter 7 as we go back. Verse 39 disproves that the Spirit was not active in the Old Testament. He was. It's a complete misunderstanding that the Spirit of God was not active in the Old Testament. Uh, The Spirit has been active since the beginning of time. He was active. He empowered believers. But He just didn't permanently indwell every believer. The Spirit's indwelling would only happen after Jesus is crucified, resurrected, and ascended up into heaven. Because you remember, what's the last thing that Jesus essentially said that there will be a helper, the Paracletus, the Holy Spirit of God. I am going to be leaving you. After 40 days on the earth in a glorified body, he ascends up into heaven from the Mount of Olives. But prior to his ascension, he says that I'm going away, but the Spirit will be here in full power. And so it was at the Feast of Pentecost... 50 days after Passover, that Peter preached that powerful sermon that we have recorded for us in Acts chapter 2. And 3,000 people listened to the gospel message, and the Spirit of God moved upon their life, convicted them of their sin. They turned to faith in Jesus Christ, and they repented of their sin. They became true followers of Jesus at that moment in time and then the Spirit of God indwelled them. Now, the Spirit indwelt people in the Old Testament. I've already said that He empowered people, believers. But He also especially indwelt certain believers in the Old Testament. We think of David, right? Psalm 51, one of the best examples where David falls into sin with Bathsheba. He says to the Lord, please don't take the Holy Spirit from me. He was indwelt by the Spirit for empowerment as king of Israel. Samson was indwelt by the Spirit. It wasn't the fact that his hair had any power. He was indwelt by the Spirit of God. He had this extra strength, and he was able to do miraculous things with his strength. But it was all because he was empowered by the Spirit of God. He was indwelt by the Spirit. And so God would, would send the Spirit to come upon certain people in the Old Testament economy to empower them in their position, but not every believer in the Old Testament was indwelt by the Spirit. This all changed after Jesus went to the cross, was resurrected, and ascended up into heaven. After the mighty sermon that Peter preaches, now in the church age, in the age of grace, the age of grace that we're living in now, every believer in Jesus Christ is fully indwelt by the Spirit of God. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? I mean... I lay in bed sometimes, I don't know if you guys do this, but I lay in bed sometimes and I think about the truths of the Bible, I'm, just, I'm like blown away, I'm like a little kid in a candy store. There was a little store down the street from our house called b and Variety, our parents would give us a nickel, we'd go down and get a half a bag of candy for a nickel, they give us a quarter, we get a full bag. That's how I'm, I feel a lot of times as I lay in bed and I think about these things, As I'm laying in bed, Kathy's snoring. No, I'm just kidding. She doesn't snore. She says I snore, but I don't know if I do or not. But anyway, as I'm laying there and I can't sleep, I'm thinking the Holy Spirit of God is in me. Do you ever contemplate these truths? The Holy Spirit, God lives in us. It's Christ in us, the hope of glory. Blows me away. A sinner like me saved by grace and only grace God has gifted us with His Spirit to live within us. One of our men is teaching a class on this right now. On the fruit of the Spirit. The deeds of the flesh and how they're completely and polar opposites of one another you see when we receive the spirit of god and we're indwelt by the spirit of god that is a sign of regeneration or new birth so the spirit has all kinds of functions but this indwelling function is absolutely amazing greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world People say, well, can a believer be indwelt by a demon? I don't think so. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. If God is sovereign, is he going to let a believer be uh, indwelt? Is, is the Holy Spirit of God going to share the dwelling with a demon? Now, there's demon influence for sure. One of the great enemies of the Christian uh, are demons and Satan. But a Christian cannot be possessed by a demon greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world so verse 39 that's what this is about in a sense i gave you a lot more detail but verse 39 disproves that the spirit was not active in the old testament so this leads to our second point which is that jesus offer causes division. Jesus' offer causes division. Look at verse 40. Some of the people therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from uh, Bethlehem? The village where david was so a division occurred in the crowd because of him imagine that another division jesus causes people to choose there's another division it's really more the same this happened wherever jesus went as he began to reveal who he was this was the common reaction there were all kinds of thoughts about who jesus is and what was and is during our study, we talked about His birthplace being Bethlehem, which was prophesied in Malachi chapter 5 and verse 2. They should all know this. We talked about His activity, we, we, where He traveled to, what He did, His lineage. Jesus was a lightning rod. He was a living lightning rod, a loving, gracious, merciful, sinless lightning rod but a lightning rod nonetheless. And what I mean by that is, you know, some people are seemingly unassuming. They don't draw a lot of attention to themselves. Not Jesus. Not Jesus. He was bigger than life, and everyone had their views as to who he was. You either embraced him or you rejected him. And this brings us to the third point, and it is that Jesus is untouched by the authorities. Jesus is untouched by the authorities. Look at verse 44. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they said to them, why did you not bring him? We told you to go get him. We told you to seize him. This division causes a huge ruckus. Some of them wanted to seize him, as we've seen before, But notice, no one laid hands on him. No one touched him. Why? Because God's sovereignty rules over all. Because it still wasn't God's sovereign time for his arrest and crucifixion. The officers were asked by the chief priests and the Pharisees, why didn't you arrest Jesus and bring him back to us? And this leads us to the fourth and final point. And it's because Jesus is like no other. Jesus is like no other. Verse 46, The officers answered, Never has a man spoke this way that this man speaks. The Pharisees then answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees have believed in him, has he? But this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. Nicodemus who uh, came to him before being one of them said to them our law does not judge a man unless it is it first hears from him and knows what he is doing does it and they answered him meaning they answered Nicodemus you are not also from Galilee are you search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee to say that Jesus is like no other may be the greatest misunderstanding of all time it may be the greatest understatement of all time of course he's unlike any other he is god he is god incarnate notice here that it appears that unlike those in the crowd who either seem to believe in him or flat out reject him the officers were somewhere in the middle the officers were confused They were perplexed by Him. They they were absolutely mesmerized by Jesus. They say, never has a man spoken the way that He speaks. They said, when asked why they didn't arrest Him, they give a plausible answer. He's unlike anyone we've ever seen before. He's unlike anyone we've ever witnessed before. Well, the Pharisees... We're not used to not getting their way, and they're furious. They're absolutely furious. They say to the officers, you haven't been led astray, have you? And when the Pharisees arrogantly say, not one of the rulers have believed in him, have they? In other words, see, we are the most spiritual men in Israel. None of us have fallen for him. And if that's the case, why are so many being duped by this man? In other words, you should be following us, and you should be mesmerized by us, not him. Of course, what they said to the officers wasn't exactly true, because Nicodemus was heavily influenced by Jesus. And while he may not have been a full follower of Jesus at this very point, he certainly would tangibly and very visibly show his belief in Jesus at a later time. Later in chapter 19 and verse 39, we learn that after Jesus' crucifixion, Nicodemus publicly proved his belief in Jesus. As he went to the grave, he brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes to help prepare Jesus' body for burial. It would be at that time that Nicodemus would fully identify as a follower of Jesus. But here, Nicodemus, perhaps the preeminent teacher of the law during this era, reminds the Pharisees that our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing. Let, let's just be reminded of how the Gospel of John begins. Stick, Keep your finger here, if you would, in John 7. And just let's go back to the beginning. Go back to chapter one, John chapter one. It seems like it's been a long time since we've been there, right? I don't know if we've been over a year in our study of the Gospel of John already, but uh, we're not even halfway. So we have a long, long way to go. Such a rich account of the life of Jesus. But go back to John chapter one, and let's just look at the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. The visible, tangible expression of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So all the cults have to change verse 1 because it's explicitly clear that Jesus was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And so they have to add another article in there and say that he was a God. Because if Jesus is God, they're accountable to Jesus as God. Cults are not accountable to the biblical Jesus. They make up a new Jesus. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life. Spiritual life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And then verse 14, and the word, this ties verse 1 through 5 to Jesus, and the word became flesh, the logos became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. The word dwelt there literally means he pitched his tent among us. And the Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory is of the only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So early on here, we find this repeated designation as God as Jesus' Father, and He as His Son, begotten of Him. This is reaffirmed in the famous verse in John 3.16 about God sending His only begotten Son. Literally, His only unique Son. The unique Son of God. So just so we're all aware, the title Son of God was used in the Old Testament for the Messiah and occasionally for Israel, but not for an individual. And this designation as God's son is not general in nature. It's an eternal relational designation. Over and over and over again in the first seven chapters, we've seen this father-son relationship described. Theologian H.R. McIntosh said this, in short, Jesus as son is distinct from the father and yet one with him. He said, Jesus never said that he and the father are a single person, but that together they are one God. This distinguishes him from the prophets and in the writings of Paul entails his participation in God's attributes. Now let's go back and finish up in John chapter 7 and look at verse 52. Verse 52. They answered him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. So this really shows the Pharisees' true colors, doesn't it? They even turn on one of the preeminent teachers as they condescendingly ask Nicodemus, well, you're not from Galilee, are you? No prophet has ever arisen out of Galilee the pharisees viewed those from the galilean region as second class lower class uneducated unsophisticated simple this is who jesus ministered to not many are wise not many are noble but they were wrong <laughs> many prophets had come from the galilean region including Jonah and Nahum, Hosea, others, Jesus. I grew up in a quasi, and that's being nice, a quasi-legalistic system myself. I've seen this kind of condescending, arrogant, holier-than-thou behavior and talk. I can't stand it. I'm repulsed by it. friend of mine told me of a guest speaker in their church who began by going over to the side of the pulpit, putting his foot on the communion table and saying, I don't know if you know this or not, but I'm a really big deal. What arrogance. Seriously? Listen to me. I can't do that, so... (laughs) Listen to me <laughs> Listen to me because i'm a i 'm a really big deal i 've seen it two this pharisaical attitude from various folks throughout my ministry and the churches that i've pastored over the years and i 'm reminded that pride goes before a fall. God despises the proud. But He gives grace to the humble. If you think you've arrived and you're on the mountaintop of your biblical understanding and you're right where you need to be with God, let me kindly rebuke you. You're not even anywhere close. And nor am I. Stay humble. Knowledge puffs up love others, put Christ and others before yourself, be generous, be teachable, be more concerned with pleasing the Lord than pleasing your flesh. And let me just say this, we all know it, but none of us are that big of a deal. None of us are a big deal. God didn't come to save people that were big deal. He came to save rotten, awful sinners like me and you. And that's why he came. None of us are a big deal. In fact, we're just the opposite. Most of us would like to argue with Paul. Well, how can you be the chief of sinners when I'm the chief of sinners? We all know ourselves. Don't fake it. We all know we're rotten sinners. The chiefs. the chiefs of sinners. That's the humility we're to have, and that's the humility that the the Apostle Paul had. You know the three types of people that I mentioned earlier? Those who absolutely want no drink. They're adamantly opposed to the gospel, to the word of God, to God, to Christ. Those who want nothing to do with the drink. Then there's those who took a sip, but then they put the cup down and they walked away. And then there were those who freely drink. When Jesus said, all you who are thirsty, come to me and I will do something that no one else can do for you. As I was finishing up my message, I want to add a fourth type of people as we close. And it's those who are generally converted. They have drank of the living water, but they're now spiritually dehydrated. I think churches are full of people like this. They're not like the people who took a sip and are going to walk away, but they're dehydrated. I went in for a blood test the other day And I was sitting there, the phlebotomist put the needle in my arm, and she said, you haven't been drinking a lot of water, have you? And I said, no, Kathy's on me all the time. You need to drink more water. You need to drink more water. And so this gal, who doesn't know me, because my blood apparently was coming out very slowly, she goes, you're dehydrated. Well it's one thing to be dehydrated physically but it's quite another to be dehydrated spiritually If you are dehydrated you have drank of the living water you have basked in the in the glories of Christ you were once just fully nourished by this living water But now you haven't been drinking as much water as you should you're not in a good place. Your, your blood's coming out really slow. It's easy for some people to see it. But sometimes we don't see it. It's like the slow heating up of the water, the frog in the kettle. Are you spiritually dehydrated? You see, Jesus isn't going anywhere. It's us that turn. It's us that kind of flip around and we get involved in all these things that we think are so important. And we neglect the One who saved us from our sin. We neglect the Spirit of God who indwells us. We neglect all the things that we rejoice over and we sing over in these songs. But we're spiritually dry. We're dehydrated. me just encourage you to examine your hearts today. We have an unbelievable Savior. A wonderful, wonderful Savior. And He's still in the business of saving people from their sin. We have seven uh, precious people that will be baptized today. Really looking forward to it. Really looking forward to it. Examine your hearts. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning that you have given us Your Son, the living bread, the living water, that we may partake of Him. And Lord, we know that most of us would claim to be a believer. Most of us would claim to know Christ as our Savior. And perhaps most of us are. But there may be some here today that are spiritually dehydrated. Lord, I pray that Not only would you save those who need to be saved, but that you would reach down into the hearts and the souls of of those who know you and have in the past freely drank of the water. And you would replenish them in a special way. That is our prayer today. Thank you for the Gospel of John and what it has taught us about our Savior Jesus Christ. And as we continue on in our study, that we would be continually reminded of the inadequacy of ourselves and the adequacy of Jesus. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.